crushed, pressed or cured. Garlic is used by many in Mzanzi. Plus, it's actually considered a profitable venture for new farmers to grow. And this week, we share a guide to get started. Israeli bee tech startup BeeWise developing robotic hives to urban rooftop bee farmers in Mzanzi. Agriculture's mission to save the global bee population is certainly creative. Now this week, Tabile Nkonjana, agricultural economist at the National Agricultural Marketing Council, explains how saving the bees could be doing more harm than good. We have an exclusive with David Sonnenberg, owner of Dimmerfontein Wine and Country Estate in Wellington in the Western Cape. We find out how the Tokozani project is changing the game for agricultural workers on their farm. Our book of the week is Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. And our farmer tip of the week comes from Jackie Riddle, South Africa's first dragon fruit farmer. This is Farmer's Inside Track, supported by Food from Zanzi. Inspiration for your business and life. From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs. Hey, I'm Zanzi, and welcome to episode 122 of Farmer's Inside Track. I'm your host, Dawn Numdu. Let's get straight into it with that promised guide to starting a garlic farm in Mzanzi. Nicole Ludolf chats to garlic farmer Jacques Terblanche from Graceland Garlic. Over to you, Nicole. Thank you so much, Dawn. Now, Jacques, can you tell us a bit about how you got into garlic farming, please? I'm a disabled person. I wanted an income and we started the business about 10 years ago. I told all my friends about the garlic farming and they started planting garlic on their own fields and I made some mistakes, but they never gave up planting on garlic and they gave up in the meantime. So I just kept on going, I persevered and that's why I succeeded. And today we've established Graceland Garlic and it's situated in Springs Gauteng and it's a very, very big garlic business. It's one of two that tells proper garlic seed. Can you give me some details about what the garlic production process is, kind of from beginning to end? Garlic planting season is in February, March, except for the Western Cape. There you can plant until April and May. And it's very important to stick to this planting window to be successful. It's not the right time to plant. It's the only time in February and March and the Western Cape, April, May. What kind of weather or climate does garlic thrive in? First of all, garlic is a winter crop, frost resistant and grows in almost any climate. We plant all over South Africa, but the main areas to plant garlic in South Africa is in the Karoo and the bushveld of South Africa, Petersburg and Melbourne Sprite is popular for garlic and it does very well there. But you can plant almost anywhere in South Africa. It likes the cooler temperatures and the cooler areas. Garlic needs shorter days of winter in order to form bigger bulbs. Garlic likes a loose soil bed, can be planted in a clay soil, but you just have to make sure that you don't overwater it because garlic wants to stay moist and not wet. If it's wet, it will rot. Can you tell me then when harvest time is? Harvest time is seven months after planting. It depends on the variety. And the Egyptian white and Egyptian pink variety is seven months, and the giant variety takes a bit longer than nine months. These are the most common in South Africa, and there are a myriad of exotic garlics that's imported, but it hasn't climatized to our conditions yet. 
is garlic something that is very expensive to produce? The seed is very expensive because you've got to make sure that your seed is disease-free and it is proper seed that you plant. There are many farmers who sell seed or people make the mistake and they go to the market and they buy garlic to plant and that garlic is doomed to fail because the imported garlic has to be irradiated and that makes it sterile. And farmers sell seed that are not disease-free. It is your irrigation, your labor and your fertilizer that is quite expensive. Labor is a big red flag when it comes to planting and harvesting. Between planting and harvesting, you have very little labor, but planting and harvesting is very labor-intensive. If you're a garlic farmer, is it something that you can do under shades or netting or that kind of thing? Garlic prefers the open land. It does not do well in pots or under nets. What kind of pests or diseases do garlic farmers have to deal with? There are a couple of funguses that garlic can get. You can read up on that on the internet to make sure. Some of it's very difficult to get rid of, so it is transferred by seed, also by human interaction in the field, when humans walk from one field to another, and also insects can transfer it. And how about the garlic market? What does that look like? The garlic is selling at record prices at the moment in supermarkets. The farmer does not get these prices, but the, most of the garlic are sold on municipal markets and food processing companies. And there are also export opportunities. I know a couple of farmers who export to the Netherlands. So the export market for garlic, is that quite big? If an aspiring farmer wanted to look at that? It's not big, but there are opportunities. Can you tell me a bit about some of the challenges you face as somebody who works with garlic production as a garlic farmer? The seed supply, my biggest obstacle is to educate the public and farmers that they have to start with proper seed. And disease-free seed is very frustrating to have farmers buy cheap seed and trying to get a proper crop from that. Good seed is the harvest of any good crop and you can't harvest a good crop from bad seed. What are some of the more rewarding aspects of farming with garlic? My greatest reward is to see other farmers who bought it from us to be successful because their success is our success. Do you have any advice for aspiring garlic farmers? You have to find a market, first of all, because you can produce the greatest crop, but if you don't have a market, it doesn't help. You've got to analyze your soil to determine what your pH should be and to correct the pH, to put the right and the correct fertilizer in the soil. Thanks, Nicole. And great having you, garlic farmer Jacques Terblanche from Graceland Garlic. Now from Israeli bee tech startup, BeeWise, developing robotic hives to urban rooftop bee farmers in Mzanzi. Agriculture's mission to save the global bee population is certainly creative. This week, Tabilin Konjana, agricultural economist at the National Agricultural Marketing Council, explains how we could actually be doing more harm than good when it comes to trying to save the global bee population. Now, Tabile, I understand that we're in a crisis when it comes to our global bee population. But could you start by explaining this and how vital it is to save the bees, especially when it comes to food production globally? It has been an important thing since the beginning of time. Bees are essentially for pollination of like most all crops meaning they are needed for food production globally. 
Now, this is going to be a complex thing, but I think specifically for South Africa, for example, they are key in the food production, which is one of the industries that the country relies on in earning foreign income. And also for sunflower seed production, which is one of the crops that the bees important for. Of course, other crops that are always relying on bees. It's a very important factor to have bee population globally and in respective countries to have it across countries because it's important for economic activities as i've said earlier that it's important mostly for production and also just to have a healthy ecosystem it is very important because you know bees are not only important for that also because of the issues of other insects there's a whole chain that involves bees along that we also have other insects that i think are also crucial combined with bees to have our healthy ecosystems, be it in around cities or in the general public in rural areas or somewhere, are they in any particular country. Now, in my introductions, I mentioned all the creative ways farmers and tech startups are aggressively trying to save a dwindling bee population. But what are the effects of this? And are we actually causing more harm than good? The world has noticed the challenge with the bee population dropping down because of the viruses. So I think as much as we are trying to do that, of course, there's going to be like other effects that are not intended in terms of the measures that are being taken to make sure that we have enough bees to keep our ecosystems functioning globally because of the issues like you know rapid population growth globally and also around the bigger cities specifically. So I think we are going to have some effects that are not intended in terms of preventing what we want to achieve in terms of our bee population. So, of course, science is going to come into to place in that and particularly issues of your pesticides to ensure that we are not losing a lot of these. But it's more complex than that. The research world is going to have explore a lot of other means to make sure that we are not causing more harm into the whole system because there are always going to be issues in terms of what you intended to do and did not want. But unfortunately, that is how, you know, a research sometimes goes. It's a matter of trial and error. Sometimes you get it right, sometimes you don't. But I think it's going to be important to explore all the other possible options in terms of making sure that we are not doing more harm than we are trying to help. Now, what is your take on what our approach should be in terms of saving the global bee populations? I think the most important thing that we'll need to do now is to do more intensive research. There is also a good amount of literature already. I think we're going to have to explore a lot of other options. For an example, it appears that from the recent research that has been done, bees in South Africa and, and Brazil showed like low viral loads, the virus that is actually killing the bees globally. For these two countries, South Africa and, and Brazil, there was not enough viral load to kill the bees. And that has been something that is not observed in other parts of the world. So this was linked, of course, to the lower population, something that has been cited as the problem in other parts of the world, particularly in Switzerland. So that is also going to be something that we'll have to look into. And also indigenous bee subspecies uh, need to be studied further. In South Africa, the bee industry is relatively small, but it is said that there's only two indigenous subspecies at least that dominate the South African bee industry. So I think the ability of these to survive the virus might have to do more with the genes that they, these two species have. It will be wise or at least be a good thing to study 
the subspecies from respective areas to ensure that the bees that are in those particular areas are actually good for that particular area. So I think that is something that we'll need to do. Uh, and also in terms of the population, in South Africa, it's cited that at least is around 1,000 registered key beekeepers, which is something relatively smaller when compared to around 9,000 that was recorded in countries like Switzerland. So having enough natural ecosystem or at least green spaces needs to be maintained in these areas, especially where there is a intensive beekeeping. At because I think, I mean, the, the issue of uh, bees and, and you know, other insects, there's always going to be a clash. It's just like a typical area where there's overgrazing of any particular commodity that is being consumed. So I think that will be part of the issues and also the issues of spreading the viruses and stuff. I think it's going to be more prevalent when there's a lot of beekeeping in a close proximity. So probably looking into that would be another key thing to look into. But it appears that overpopulation it is a big issue, which is something that we did not have in South Africa, not maybe because the industry is not so big as compared to other developed countries. And then what is your final message to bee farmers and others in the value chain connected to farming with this livestock? Look into the issues of how to naturally control the virus itself. As much as this is still a new topic or is a developing topic, I think it's important to understand like a whole lot of other complex issues because, for an example, the issues of viruses that we found in, even in South Africa and Brazil, as much as it was lower than other countries, the virus appeared in different types of forms. So it's a relatively complex situation. So I think for now, the best option is for bee farmers to make sure that at least for now, they look into the issues of natural production efforts and also to maybe, if there is other option, to use lesser pesticides have been developed to, you know, to assist to a great deal and then they've proved to be a, a very useful tool but i think it is going to be important to also look into the issues of uh, you know natural measures for now because as i was saying earlier on that this thing is still a developing process and also it is very complex so i don't think there's going to be one factor or one key or silver bullet to solve the whole system or the whole problem but i think it is worthwhile to at least to explore the natural ways of producing bees and then we, we can take it from there but i think research as i said earlier is going to be very important to ensure that we are having a sustainable bee population not necessarily in the countries but in the country south africa but also with the, the global bee population itself Thanks so much for joining us here on Farmers Inside Track. Tabilin Konjana, Agricultural Economist at the National Agricultural Marketing Council. Next up, we have an exclusive with David Sonnenberg, owner of the Dimosfontein Wine and Country Estate in Wellington, in the Western Cape, which also happens to be my hometown, by the way. Duncan Masiwa, Food for Mzanzi's Head of News, chats to him about the Tokozani project that is changing the game for agricultural workers on their farm. We believe that agriculture has this power to create social cohesion. What are your thoughts on that and how have you seen that being true with especially the Tokozani project with regards to that? Agriculture has obviously been central to this country's development over the centuries, hasn't it? It's had so many challenges and problems, but it's also been the livelihood of, of so many people. And I think the issue has been that there's probably been a whole lot more goodwill underpinning it that hasn't reached the popular channels. And so you were talking earlier about, well, there's a fantasy about what happens in most farms. 
And while that's undoubtedly true, you know, there have been just so many different ways in which the farming community with the employers have been like families. I don't want to romanticize that because I think there's also been very abusive situations as well. And we don't need to reiterate that. Probably looking forward, we have to say the foundation used to be extremely rocky in general or exploitative. And in terms of people of color reaching both economic and personal maturity and equality, that's an ongoing process. And I think that that should preoccupy everybody, because not only is it correct from a moral and human point of view, but it's also correct from a business point that you get better productivity about people who feel good about themselves. So I think, you know, I had some models in my mind when I came back to South Africa. We were away for 20 years. This was my grandfather's farm, as you may know. So when I decided to make it the career for my the second part of my life, I wanted to use whatever skills I had, both in terms of business, building a proper brand, and uh, bits of me that was preoccupied with development, and to see whether we could marry the two concepts. And I want to say I'm not original, right? There are other people like me in different industries and farming itself. All I can tell you about is my own experience. I was blessed enough to have inherited this farm. The age of 15 plus made it my full career. So it's been very exciting, challenging, and I think everything we've done here has reflected all the challenges that we have in this country, which is imbalance of wealth, education, skills, personal stability, if you like. And all these things... Um, I've been very blessed with, and my wife and I have seen it as a kind of duty as privileged people to see if we can become catalysts for other people's development. That having been said, I'm not painting myself as any sort of rosy-eyed idealist. My feet are fairly sensibly on the ground. We've tried to be progressive employers and produce progressive thinking and structures on the farm. I like that, you know, you talked about your um, passion for interest for development. Where does that come from? Well, I think it initially comes from the heart and the nature of the family that I grew up in. And while my parents were not overtly political, they were sort of passionate humanitarians, which I think was expressed in a variety of things. But they didn't have any programs to deal with it. It's just the, the way that they tended to treat people. It starts with the heart, and then it became in some way my profession, because after a stint in retail, I became a clinical psychologist. You know, I worked as a developmental psychologist, both in terms of industry and clinically. I think I know something about the pace at which one can expect to develop, and it's probably slower than what people would like. I think we know that to change people's mindsets, their self-concepts, is a generational thing. It's not an overnight contact. It's a tool for it. Yes, there was one. But... So I'm a, a psychologist who's worked in both clinical and industrial settings. I've yeah. done quite a lot of training over the years in a variety of sources, with group development, organizational development, some corporate consulting. I did quite a lot of recruitment as well in terms of placing the best people in jobs. So I've had a, both a clinical and an industrial business-oriented mindset. You talked earlier about, you know, imbalances with regards to education, skills. How is Diversfontaine addressing that, and especially looking at the Tupuzani project, and why is that so important to you? I mean, there's no point in training a tractor driver to become a 
and accounting. He's got to learn to be a good tractor driver, and hopefully, if he's any good and ambitious, he can move into being a supervisor or something. So, I think the first thing is that you've got to have a realistic base about not pretending to educate people into roles for which you don't have positions. Our on the job training is linked to current roles, but there's also a developmental aspect of it. We don't necessarily mean that people who have got the capacity for developing further can't progress. I don't think we have enough of them, frankly, but also a lot of it's on the job training. We currently have, you know, a few people on attachments to the company. So we help train people from outside the estate. And one also hopes that people get trained in the value systems just from the sort of things that we say to them in our in-house meetings. And so there's the issue of values and hard skills and business skills and technical skills. And you know, I don't think that's unique. Every CEO worth his salt is saying, how do I educate my workforce better? So there's nothing unique about what we do. There's some people, you know, who just don't especially want to change their status and shock you. I want to go on that course. But that's not the norm. The norm is people want to learn. And if you can create conditions in, in which it's fun, and you don't patronize people and you just give them opportunities, then, then they usually grab it. So, but we've got a long way to go, I'm thinking in terms of, you know, when the whole idea behind um, Tokozani's um, started, I'm still in the planning phases. There must have been so many challenges getting this project or this initiative off the ground. Like taking farm workers who's always only known, you know, one side of agriculture, which is the in the field hard labor. And here they are exposed to a completely different scene of the agricultural business sector. What were the challenges in kickstarting this program? I think they're ongoing in the sense that why would somebody who has grown his parents or grandparents before them were farm workers, why would they have the skills or the mindset to think of what it is to be a shareholder and a co-owner? And it's a very difficult transition, not because uh, anything else than that's not, you know, it it comes from left field. It's not something that they kind of expected or were familiar with. So I think, you know, the first thing was to try and, and Denise has been incredibly effective at this in a way that's very accessible, to try and instill an idea that, listen, this is partly your company. Again, seeing is believing, and they've got, have had to wait until there have been tangible demonstrations of what that co-ownership is. And it's only happened in recent times. You know, we've only, in the last year, managed to create a decent dividend or a meaningful dividend. Thanks, Duncan. And thanks so much for joining us. David Sonnenberg owner of the Dimosfontein Wine and Country Estate in Wellington in the Western Cape. Next up is our book of the week, Crossing the Chasm, by Jeffrey Moore. Here's the author talking about what it means to actually be crossing the chasm. It was a book that came out in 1990. I just refreshed it with examples from the 21st century. And so the question was, okay, well, what's new and what's not? Where's this model going? And so I, I think a big data conference is a great place to sort of test drive that issue. And that's what I want to do for you. Just to kind of recalibrate, this model was the idea, if you introduce disruptive innovation into any community, how does the community react? 
And the community reacts in five different strategies. There's a technology enthusiast strategy, an innovator strategy, it tends to focus on the cool tools, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. The visionary or early adopter strategy, which is I'm gonna go first, I'm gonna get ahead of this thing. I realize most people aren't ready to do it, but I am, or I think I see the possibilities here. I'm gonna take a risk, I'm gonna get a high reward, high risk play. The pragmatist strategy of the early majority, which is, well, I'm not. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test this thing out. I want to wait and see. And I'm going to basically calibrate my decisions with my peers. I might come to a conference like this as a pragmatist, but I'm primarily going to check out with other pragmatists. Are you doing this yet? Are you? Yeah? No? No? Okay, me neither. Okay. Or yeah, you are? Well, maybe I should too. That kind of stuff. The conservatives or the late majority are doing more of like, man, it's the longer I can hold this off, the better. This is just, I, you know, pioneers have arrows in their back I and mean, all that kind of stuff. And then the laggards at the back end who think that everyone in this room is an instrument of the devil. The way this model plays out, what we learned was that the first two groups kind of work with each other. The technology enthusiasts and the visionaries, they communicate with each other. Think like Waz and Steve Jobs, classic pair. And they go early. And they go early and create this thing we, called the, we ended up calling the early market project-oriented time, you're breaking through, you're doing all kinds of really cool things. The chasm was an effect of the pragmatist going, well, I'm not quite ready. I'm interested, but I'm not quite ready. And getting those pragmatists into the game turned out to be a much harder problem than we thought. One of the things we learned is that to get them into the game, you have to actually focus on some early use cases that are where pragmatists are under duress. Pragmatists will not move until they're under duress. Pragmatists in pain are the people that move first. That can get the sort of the innovation fire lit on the other side of the chasm. If you get a few of these use cases going, we call them bowling pins because they kind of help knock each other over. You make it to a place we call a tornado, which is, oh my God, everybody's doing this. And then the pragmatist heard stampedes. So it's a little bit like a junior high dance moment. The chasm sort of like boys on one side of the gym, girls on the other side of the gym kind of problem. And then the tornadoes when they all come in. And it is, it's kind of like playing Othello. If you've ever played Othello and you turn one spot to black, the entire board goes black, that kind of an issue. That's what a tornado is like. And then eventually you get to Main Street. Main Street is we've adopted these things. We're ready to go. Now let's kind of incorporate them into things. And now let's get sustaining innovation incrementally evolution not revolution so it's revolution up through the tornado and then it's evolution after main street and this is the technology adoption life cycle the category can last for decades after this but this is typically in the first 10 years of the category kind of model that's the model it was introduced in the early 90s it had a lot of play in the early 90s the two key principles were on crossing the chasm Pick a very specific focus. That first use case, pick one. Not two, not three, one. Niche market under intractable problem, not solvable by conventional means. Now think about this, who has a stake in big data. This is the target on the other side of the chasm. I'm going to argue that I don't think big data itself is across the chasm yet, so I, this is where I'd love to be thinking about. Process owner is under pressure to find a solution. Pragmatists are willing to consider a disruptive approach. These beachhead segments tend to be in a single vertical industry and even in a single department within that single vertical industry that's just the crucible of change. It's the excruciating place where the discontinuity of the digital world is meeting the reality of, of that sector at that moment. And there's some process owner somewhere who says, I am well and truly screwed. So how can, how can you guys come and help? And what you need to bring to that person is the complete solution to their problem. They don't have the resources to do a big project and kind of explore with you. They're not in exploration mode. They're in desperation mode. Your company, no matter how big it is, will not have all of the parts of the solution. So you have to typically involve partners and allies, and you have to work to bring them together. And the lead vendor, the person who leads this charge, is the person who ends up getting the credit for this, and you end up establishing your company and the category on the other side of the chasm. So that's the game. Agriculture is not just about farming. 
It's about caring, and that's an ideal worth preserving. It's yummy. It's good for you. And the whole family loves it. It's grain-filled chickens, proudly South African and mouth-wateringly delicious. Discover a world of tasty goodness and visit Grain-Filled Chickens, the CO.ZA, or like our Facebook page for more. Grain-Filled Chickens, a proud member of VKB. VKB, for the love of the land. Now that sounds like a book that any new business owner should be reading. And remember, if you'd like to review a book or perhaps you have a book suggestion, feel free to email us on info at foodformzanzi.co.za. Now before we let you go, our tip of the week comes from Jackie Riddle from Dragon Fruit Potency. She's one of the first dragon fruit farmers in Mzanzi. And this week she shares a few tips for new farmers to get started with this beautiful crop. I think once a person has established that dragon fruit will grow in your area, if an avo thrives there, then you know that dragon fruit will as well. Then I think the single most important decision is which varieties you are going to plant. It is essential to do your homework and to purchase cuttings from someone who knows which varieties are sweet tasting, self-pollinating varieties, and varieties which the public, once they've bought and tasted, will return to the shops to buy. Already there are farmers who have spent a lot of money on varieties and they are very seriously considering destroying them and removing them because they are producing fruit that nobody wants to buy. So for this reason, I think potential farmers have got to make very, very sure of their choices of purchase of variety. Very often, the more reasonable nurseryman that supplies them with the cuttings will very often or should be able to give them backup support on how to grow it and fertilize it and act as a mentor to some extent as they go from there. And our Farmer Tip of the Week from Jackie Riddle brings us to the end of another exciting episode. Remember, if you loved this podcast, please rate it and share it with your friends family members, and of course, this is a farmer's podcast, so don't forget to forward it to your fellow farmers as well. And be sure to check out our sister publication called foodforafrica.com for inspiration and news from across the continent. From me, Dawn Numdu, our producer, Megan van der Vent, and the rest of the Food for Mzanzi team, have a great week. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring, and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food for Mzanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story.